following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. Hello, listeners on Saga 960 AM and those listening around the world on streaming and podcast services. This is It's Not Therapy. I'm Leanna Kersner, and I am not a therapist, but I am your source for practical advice for everyday problems using my top 10 sayings for checking in with your best self. This episode, we're talking self-care, but specifically self-care for tough guys. And I'm using guys as a gender neutral term here because a lot of this stuff is coming from my own experiences and I have issues with this stuff. Media personality and co-founder of the Sick Not Weak organization, Michael Landsberg. Yeah, Michael Landsberg, guys, will join me later talking about his self-care strategies. But first, I'm going to set the table because, full disclosure, I hate the whole discourse surrounding self-care. If that's piqued your interest and you want to ask a question, give me a call, 289-275-9600, or my preferred way of getting in contact with me, Leanna at Not Therapy Show, that's L-I-A-N-A at NotTherapyShow.com. Contact me on the NotTherapyShow.com website or Twitter, Instagram, Not Therapy Show. You can check out weekly short videos on Instagram as well, if you're so inclined. So, yeah. I don't like self-care talk at all. I'm not a candles and aromatherapy person. Now, partially it's because I'm allergic to a lot of that stuff, but that's not the whole thing. It's also just froofy. I don't know how else to describe it. The whole thing feels like something is trying to normalize me through my nose. Now, don't get me wrong, if you like that stuff, that's great. Anything that makes someone happy is awesome, and that doesn't mean I don't like nice smelling things. Double negatives, oh gee. Don't get me wrong. This stuff just isn't me. The typical light a candle, take a bubble bath, no. My idea of a self-care break is the world going away for a day or two while I slaughter things in a video game. Right now, it's Elden Ring, don't judge. And this is what I do regularly because it's the cheapest thing that I can do that actually makes me feel more grounded. Going out is expensive right now. Now, what video games do, especially the ones I really have to pay attention to, is give me processing time. But it also lets me work out some frustrations. Elden Ring's not good for that. And give me a sense of achievement. Elden Ring is much better for that. Knowing a problem is solvable can be really good for my peace of mind sometimes because so many problems in life don't have easier, immediate solutions. And by immediate, I mean figure it out in a few hours. Now, a while back, I asked my online community for equivalents of spa days for guys. And the responses I got included things like, hunting and fishing trips, or other similar activities-based behaviors. I've enjoyed fishing the few times I've been, but I checked the research and it indicates that there are some pitfalls to activities-driven socialization. What happens when everybody's assembling for a task and not to just sort of talk, you know, catch up, face-to-face -face time, 
when it's surrounding a structured activity, no guy wants to ruin the other guy's good time. So guys mask and they don't speak up when something's bothering them either immediately or long term because, you know, they don't want to ruin everybody else's fun. Everybody else is having a great time and everybody else is masking the exact same way. And like I said, guys here is a gender neutral term. It's the mindset, not the gender, right? Without really understanding what self-care means, it's easy to have gaps in it that lead to exhaustion. An example, it's great to get in that social time, you know, hanging out with the guys, but not to the point that you're chronically sleep deprived and eating lousy food because of too much partying. Finding balance is the trick. Physical, social, mental and emotional self-care all require different types of attention. Some people add a spiritual self-care category too, but I personally combine that into emotional self-care. If you find it helpful to add the spiritual element, go for it. Now, the fancy word for this approach, the clinical term, is the biopsychosocial mental health care model, in case you're curious. That biopsychosocial is a good way of keeping all these elements in mind, even if you don't care about the fancy name. Bio. The biological element is about taking care of your body. Diet, exercise, sleep, going to the doctor when you need it. If in doubt, you need to. Canadians with free healthcare. These are all the biological elements of wellness. You can't feel good emotionally if you don't feel good physically. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've got some chronic pain condition, you're doomed to misery. It just means that you don't need to walk around feeling more awful than you have to because you've got some neglected physical thing. Remember, top 10 phrase, ignoring negatives isn't being positive. Listen to your body when it's giving you negative feedback. That's important information. And I say this as someone with a major aversion to going to the doctor. I spent more than five years being gaslit by various doctors insisting there was nothing wrong with me when I had an autoimmune disease. Before that, I had a horrendous fear of needles because of a thing that happened to me very, very young in life. So any interaction with the healthcare system wears on my emotional health. So my emotional health is compromised by seeing to my physical health. All the blood tests and doctors and this and that, machines and waiting and yeah, it gets old. But can I do anything about needing to get those tests done? Well, not really. So I have to focus on what I can control, my emotional well-being, by doing things like not scheduling anything. I don't have to around those appointments, doing something nice for myself when I get through it and setting boundaries so I don't get too worn down and overwhelmed. And am I great at that? Eh, not really, but I'm working on it. I'm not ignoring that I've got a lifetime of programming to overcome on that front. But am I better than, at it than I have been? Oh, definitely. You know, that's not being entirely fair to myself. My coping skills, boundaries, and emotional regulation are pretty good. I just need them to be superhuman and... That's not possible with regularity. So I do the best I can and I'm not too hard on myself when I come up short and I just keep trying to be better every day. Now, if anything here again inspires a question, 
289-275-9600. Leanna at nottherapyshow.com to email me. The contact form on nottherapyshow.com or at nottherapyshow on Twitter and Instagram. So, emotional well-being. Emotional well-being is something that's still poorly understood compared to what it means to be physically healthy. I call what I do emotional nutrition instead of mental health the therapists do to try to create that comparison for people. If we take care of physical health maintenance, diet, exercise, sleep, that kind of stuff, we usually don't have to go to the doctor as much, right? And if we really neglect our physical health, the best doctor in the world won't be able to cure the diseases that ensue. But a lot of people throw that concept out the window with their mental health. The best therapist in the world can't help you if you don't exercise your mind and you live on a diet of emotional junk food. If you're filling your brain with garbage like negative self-talk, unrealistic goals, a lack of self-compassion, and a lack of boundaries, that's the same as existing on a diet of fast food. It may fill you up and satisfy a craving in the short term, but in the long run, that stuff's killing you. And yes, like physical health, we all have some bad habits. Wallowing in self-pity, for instance, is like alcohol. A little won't hurt you, too much is a problem. If you can name, validate, and process your feelings, that's good emotional nutrition. Emotional exercise can be things like journaling, practicing naming and understanding your feelings, setting boundaries, meditation, even talking to a trusted friend. And of course, just like physical exercise, knowing when to take breaks and rest is important too. One of my least favorite tough guy platitudes is the whole give it 110% thing. It makes no sense. Giving away more of your emotional and physical energy is terrible advice. So much of this tough guy stuff is damaging because it's encouraging you to overextend yourself and that's a great way to end up depleted. That's an example of how our social environments compromise our emotional well-being by feeding it junk. Fortunately for me, the social element isn't one I struggle with as much anymore. I'm an introvert, but I'm really good at managing social overwhelm through a lot of practice. So that one, way more manageable. But while my friends group is small, I trust them. They don't feed each other toxic platitudes about toughness. Now, that wasn't always so. There was a time I had a social group that wasn't good for me because it was feeding me an unhealthy diet of negativity. Being surrounded by people with poor emotional nutrition is like constantly inhaling secondhand smoke. That ish is cancerous. Worse, good people don't want to be in a bad crowd. So if you're surrounded by human junk food, good emotional nutrition can't get through. Think about it. If you kept feeling bad after eating a food, would you keep eating it? Probably not after a while. So why do you keep eating garbage from the people around you? Now, some people think I'm insane when I say it's better to be alone than to be around toxic people, but I stand by it based on my own experiences. In the biopsychosocial mental health model, that social environmental element 
is the thing that tends to get neglected. And again, the best therapist in the world can't help you get better emotional nutrition if you're feeding yourself junk food every time you hang out with people. That's 360 holistic self-care in a nutshell. Now, where's the spiritual part I mentioned off the top come in? Well, that depends on your relationship with your God. There's a lot of ways to do it right. There's some ways to do it wrong. I'll caution that things like energy work and crystals are not substitutes for proper emotional nutrition. You know, deep down, if you're using spirituality as an avoidance tool, some people also use spirituality to have an unhealthy amount of control over their environment and the people in it. None of these things are obviously a good idea. And if you stop, if you get better at naming your feelings and self-awareness exercises, you'll know whether your relationship to your spirituality is helping you or if you need more nutritious soul food. Again, 289-275-9600. If any of this sparks you to want to ask a question, my preferred method of contact is Leanna at nottherapyshow.com. Or if that's too much, you don't know how to spell my name. It's L-I-A-N-A, by the way. But contact on nottherapyshow.com, at nottherapyshow on Twitter and Instagram. Because when we come back, when we come back, we get the founder of Sick Not Week and media personality. This guy, Canadians recognize him from sports programming Michael Landsberg will be here to give his very informed perspective on self-care when we come back this is still it's not therapy I'm still not a therapist we'll still be here after the break the following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions if you're seeking social services please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca We're back on It's Not Therapy, talking self-care, especially for tough guys. And you know what time it is, guys. It's time for the It's Not Therapy interview. And this week, I've got a super special guest, Michael Landsberg. Canadians may know this. Well, people around the world may know Michael. He's a media personality known for the sports world, as well as co-founder of Sick Not Week. Now, Michael, before we get into self-care, for people that don't know what Sick Not Week is, let them know, because this is a really cool organization. Yeah, it's in 2016, I said sexting, which uh, I either did on purpose uh, or maybe it was subliminal and Freudian. But in 2016, <laughs> I, uh, my daughter and I founded uh, a charity called uh, Sick Not Weak Charitable Foundation. Uh, I had been speaking about my mental health challenges since 2009. And uh, I just thought I wanted to do something that was kind of put it all in one place. And Sick Not Week was kind of like, for me, that's the way I like to describe my own mental illness, that it's a sickness, not a weakness. And I believe without a doubt that the stigma around mental health is really based on the perception of weakness. No one wants to be seen as weak. So if you see yourself as weak because of your illness, you will not share. And if you do not share, you will not get help. Yeah, and that's something that gets in the way of self-care, which is why I wanted to talk to you about this, because people talk about self-care. We say it, oh, take some time, do this. But it's one thing to give lip service. It's another thing to do it. 
right? And I do think that that weakness, that recognizing limits so you can set boundaries is a big part of what gets in the way of effective self-care. The other is connected to that of the idea, you know, when you hear self-care, a lot of people think, oh, light a candle, take a bath, you know, use aromatherapy, stuff like that. And it's way more all-encompassing. So let's start personal and go bigger. What are your pillars of self-care personally? You know, I think for me, self-care could be said in a different way. Um, which is uh, also known as a synonym. I, I don't know if you know that, but uh, self-care for me is self-awareness. Uh, it's all about understanding the way my brain works. It's all about understanding the way my brain is affected by, by illness, uh, depression, and anxiety. Uh, and when I'm self-aware, I'm using the history of my illness in my head to, to really uh, frame it for me. And uh, let me explain that to you. Uh, for a long time, what would happen would be I would have a bad day because that's what happens with mental illness. And because I'm on medication, my bad days aren't terrible days, but they do still happen. Before I was on medication in the four or five times that I've been off meds, there was no such thing as just a bad day. Every day was horrendous. So now I have this good day, bad day kind of thing. And when I'm having a bad day, I could make it worse. This is where, where I need to look at my history. I would, I, would, I would think to myself, oh my God, this is, you know, like I don't feel good. And then I would create the sense of panic. What happens if I don't feel good again tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And the next day, are my meds not working anymore? Am I relapsing? Am I going to be back to where I am? And I have a tattoo on my arm, which you could ask me about. Am I going to be back in that place? So I would take a bad day and make it worse. But I would also take a good day and go, oh, I feel so good today, so normal. You know, what happens if tomorrow I don't? I don't want to lose this. You know, it's like a reminder that life can be easy. Uh, So I start to panic that if it's taken away, it's going to be even more painful. So what I have learned to do through self-awareness and therefore through self-care is understand the ebbs and flows of my illness uh, and to to appreciate the fact that a bad day is going to end and a good day should be celebrated on on its own without worrying whether it's going to end. Yeah, that's a really great place to start because, you know, you can't care for yourself if you're not aware of yourself, of your unique well, not just circumstances, but like you said, what's going on? Everybody's mind works in different ways. And what's going to work for one person is not going to work for another. So how did you start that process? I mean, obviously medication. And that's one of those things that some people like, oh, I don't want to take medicine and I'm <laughs> medications. It's like, what do you say to people like that? Because to me, that's a major part of self-care. And I feel like a lot of people shoot themselves in the foot because of mental health stigma right there right there it's 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 uh, there was a time in our lives you and I uh not together but um you know existing on this planet where people started to question antibiotics I I, like I don't I don't hear it anymore where Mm. people go oh god I would never go on them and the people that tell you oh you know my kid had an ear infection so I put you know vegetable oil in his or her ear um 
but I don't hear that much anymore. So it's almost like the only drug that the only type of medication that we really question in this way are antidepressants. The only ones where you hear people say, I don't believe in them. Like it's a religious thing. I don't believe in antidepressants. Oh my God, I would never go on antidepressants. And I have this, this debate with people, not from a personal standpoint, because I, I don't feel threatened if people mm. criticize medication, but I have this conversation a lot. So I'm totally prepared to give that conversation to you, which is first thing I say to people, you got to learn to fight for your happiness because you're not happy right now. You're sick and you have to make a conscious decision that you will do anything to get better because right now you're not really living. You know, if you have severe depression, you are alive, but you're not really functioning. And it's kind of like, you're just, you get out of bed only so you can get back in bed and you just want the passage of time. So you have to decide that nothing is more important than you fighting this. And to take something like medication off the table is just foolish. Mm -hmm. I I, I always say, look, I'm not an advocate for meds. I'm an advocate for saying I will do anything to get better. And medication is one thing. You don't have to start with it. You know, like, like you can do all mm -hmm. kinds of other things, but you got to leave it all on the table. That's self-care. If you deprive yourself of one of the major options in getting better, then you're you're lessening your chances of finding relief. And I will also say that I'm on meds and I hate being on meds. I hate the medication I'm on. I'm on Ciprolex and Wellbutrin and I hate it, but I hate the illness more. I have learned to love the thing I hate the least, which is you know, very common with medications, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. People who, who need chemotherapy for cancer hate the drugs that they're forced to take because of the side effects that they have from them. But they make the choice to do it because they hate the idea of dying more. I hate the medication I'm on, but I take them because I hate the idea of relapsing and being back to where I was. That, that hits home. I have an autoimmune disease. And so I'm on hydroxychloroquine for the autoimmune disease. A drug oh, that's been incredibly gosh. politicized, yeah. right? And so I get the hairy eyeball if, you know, I, I lose a prescription or because I think I'm selling the drug. They've actually started referring to it as its other name in Canada, Plaquenil, because of the stigma around that drug. Really? So, oh, that's, yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. So, so you're not, so, uh, uh, Leanna, if I, uh, if I'm looking to score some hydroxy, can you get it? And <laughs> can you, uh, uh, hold on. I love the, with ivermectin. Oh my God. That <laughs> I don't is, have uh, any of that. That is you know? so sweet. Yeah. I have had no need to tranquilize a horse yet, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, I language matters a lot. And I have one client who, to get himself over the idea of taking medication, he started, he's, he's from the sports world like you, he started calling it performance enhancing drugs. Hmm. And I'm sure some people, yeah, would think is, would go, oh, that's weird, but it works for him. I actually really like that. I think it, I think it's, uh, I thought it was really I mean, clever. Yeah, it's, it's really clever uh, because it, it has a couple of sides to it. But in the end, it is, it is actually very accurate. You're taking this medication because you want to perform in life better. You know, and the, the key performance is whether or not you can experience happiness in your life. Um, you know, that to me is, I, I have given uh, 
200, I'm just making up the number, but let's go with it. <laughs> 200 talks in my life, somewhere around that. And, you know, I don't know how many people that means I've talked to face to face, but it's, you know, it's in the many thousands. And my point is not to say, look what I've done. My point is that when I ask people in the audience, how many of you have battled depression? Uh, there's always people that put up their hands. And if I'm giving a talk to a mental health audience, if they're there to hear someone talk about it, then many of them put up their hands. And then I say, Tell me, put up your hand again, if you have not experienced two things about depression. Number one, the loss of the ability to experience joy. So it's not that, you know, you're, that bad things are happening to you. It's not like you're in, you know, you're in a slump. It's just that you can't feel good about anything because of the illness. You know, not one person has ever put up their hand and said, no, not me. Not one person. It is universal. So I look at performance enhancing uh, drug, which, you know what? I'm, I may just steal that. Uh, <laughs> I told and, them that too. I said, I'm yeah. stealing that. It's a yeah. good one. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, like your greatest performance, most important performance is uh, is on your ability to perform as, as a living, breathing human being. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is um, that that's really profound what you said about the inability to feel, because I think that's a big misunderstanding when it comes to depression, anxiety, depression, especially. It's not just feeling down. It's not being sad. It's even calling it numb doesn't do it justice. It is its own thing. And I think because of the way it sets in the time of your life it sets in and various things, it makes it very difficult to understand what's going on so that early intervention can happen. If somebody's listening to this right now uh, in the, you know, the goal of self-care, if somebody's listening to it right now and, and what you said makes them think that's me, how do I know? What do you suggest? Uh, I mean, I guess I, I never really refer to it as self-care, mm -hmm. but I think it's a really, I, I think I might start sort of looking at it more that way because it's kind of like if, if you don't look after yourself, no one can, right? I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that someone can do for you. And part of that is being self-aware of your mental health and asking yourself the questions, you know, am I what I want to be, where I should be? Uh, and I, I, I say to people, uh, you know, take the basic joy test. And the basic joy test is this. What is it in your life that brings you basic joy? Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, uh, I always use the example of a sip of coffee in the morning. I just, you know, I like it. It's not like I scream out, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, yeah, I like that. But depression robs me of the ability to feel that joy. So I can drink the same cup of coffee when I'm depressed and not feel any joy from it. So I say to people, okay, and we're talking to people right now, ask yourself this question. You know, what brings you uh, basic joy? Does it bring it to you once you've come to the conclusion of what it is? Do you still feel that basic joy right now? And if the answer is yeah, um, then great. If the answer is no, ask yourself, when was the last time you actually felt it? And if the answer is you can't remember, then you owe it to yourself to pursue help. That doesn't mean, you know, going on medication. That doesn't mean going for ECT. It means talking to someone about this to find out what their opinion is about where you're at, because no one can do it for you. No one. 
Michael Landsberg dropping truth bombs on It's Not Therapy. Michael's the co-founder of Sick Not Week. You can check him out on sicknotweek.com. And you're going to hear more from Michael after the break. But we have to pause for this commercial. We'll be back talking self-care on It's Not Therapy right after this. The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. back on It's Not Therapy. I'm still Leanna Kurzer. I'm still not a therapist and I am still talking to Michael Landsberg, well-known Canadian media personality and more importantly, the co-founder of Sick Not Week. Sicknotweek.com. You can check that out. We're talking self-care. Now, going back to that idea of of weakness and weakness being a barrier to self-care, you know, you said if you don't look after yourself, no one else will. But there are a lot of people walking around out there thinking needs are weakness, limits are weakness. And that's what I think your organization speaks to with the language. So what do you say to people who think that they have to, you know, Iron Man it through life. There's this whole thing about overcoming and pushing and 110% and, you know, these mathematical impossibilities that we internalize. Mm-hmm. I, I think the answer to that is, uh, first of all, uh, go to your computer and Google depression and look at it and look at how widespread it is and look at the kind of people that you admire who maybe have battled depression mm-hmm. and ask yourself, you know, like, is that, is that a weakness or, or is it a sickness? Uh, and if it's a sickness, then no matter what you do, you can't will your way out of it. You can't bench press your way out yeah. of it. You know, it, it's all comes down to the understanding and the acceptance that mental illness, like depression, like anxiety, like bipolar, like OCD, like ADHD, um, you know, I, I call those sort of the garden variety mental illnesses, the most common ones. It all comes down to accepting the fact that we don't will it upon ourselves. We don't choose that. And therefore, we can't will it away. It's an illness like anything else that uh, if you think that somehow you're to blame for this, then you, you need to do everything in your power to educate yourself, to learn that it's not your fault. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thinking that's been around for hundreds of years, right? I, I mean, I used to think the same thing. Like I, I, I used to think uh, before I got hit with depression, uh, I used to think when I would hear someone took three months off work or, you know, like they had a nervous breakdown, which I'm, I'm actually still not 100% sure what a nervous breakdown is. But I, I would hear stories about people and I would think to myself, I wouldn't say it, I would never insult them, but I would think to myself, God, like, just suck it up, you know, like, dude, what are you doing? Like, I know you don't want to get out of bed or you're going through a bad time. And I feel bad about that. But, you know, you got to toughen up because we all go through it. And then I learned the first time I got hit by depression. Oh, my God, this is nothing like I thought it was nothing. I wanted to go around and apologize to people for thinking what I thought. Uh, It's nothing like I thought it was. And I realized instantly that no one who hasn't been through it can understand it. You can't, no matter how hard you try, you can't understand what it feels like. It's a pain of a totally different kind. And it's a pain that's really difficult to put in words, right? Yeah, that's a really challenging element of this sort of discussion 
right? Because empathy is hard earned, right? You earn intelligence you can learn from a book, but wisdom, you have to go out in life, get knocked around. Oh yeah, that hurt. I shouldn't do that to other people, right? I mean, it's at the point where I work with people where I can't even say to them, it's not your fault because their brain edits out the not and all they hear is your fault, right? And so mm. it's like, you deserve better. And those little changes only come from, I think, knowing what it's like. But obviously, we don't want every person in the world to go through horrible stuff to develop empathy. So, because you're very good, clearly, at explaining this to people, you know, through your own experiences, you're, you took the step back when you first talked about it on TV to go, I'm going to break down this barrier. I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to be, did you see it as bravery at the time? No. Or was it just, I got to do this. Yeah. No. You know, I asked that question to an audience uh, and uh, like I'll, I'll very often say, uh, you know, by the way, how many people here think that I'm courageous? You know, I'm on stage talking about mental illness. How many people, and of course, everyone puts up their hand, mm -hmm. right? Even if they didn't think so, like when you're face to face with people, uh, they're going to they're gonna do the, the nice thing, which is to say, yeah, you're courageous. But most people do see it as that. And I, I say, look, you know, you got to know I'm going somewhere with this because only a jerk, a total jerk acid audience if I'm courageous and they put up their hands and I go, yeah, you're right. My point is that uh, it took no courage for me because it uh, because I had no fear of this. Just the way I'm wired. It's not something I worked at. Uh, just the way I was wired. Uh, on TV, I was interviewing a, a, a guy. I, I mean, I battled anxiety all my life and depression for 10 years before I started talking about it on TV. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I never talked about it is I thought no one would care. I wasn't embarrassed. Everyone in my life knew about it. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, everyone thinks Landsberg's arrogant, so he probably just wants us to like him. So it was like, why would I bother? I didn't know there was a value. And then uh, I talked about it this one time and I found out that there's huge value to sharing. And the more vulnerable we make ourselves, the more explicit we are on what mental illness does to us, mm -hmm. the more we benefit other people. Like it's, it's, it's great to say, hey, I battle an illness called depression. But what's even better is to say, I battle an illness called depression. And you know, some of the things it does to me, it crushes my self-esteem and self-confidence that doing something that I have done many times before and had total belief in myself, when I'm depressed, it all evaporates. And now I doubt everything I do. And I see myself in a totally different way. That's, I think, where the value is. Because as you said before, People listening might go, wow, I think he's talking about me. Mm -hmm. That's where change mm -hmm. happens in people's, uh, in, in how they self-care, right? When you realize, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not a loser because a lot of us think that we are losers because we are fighting something that we don't think other people are necessarily fighting because you mm -hmm. can't see it, mm -hmm. right? You know, mm -hmm. if you put a cast on your head because you had depression and you looked and you saw all these people with casts on their head, you would say, oh, well, there's lots of us. But because you can't see anything, you kind of make the assumption like I must be the only one. Yeah, I mean, that's I thought when when you did it back in the day, I thought it was a wonderful act of self-care because, you know, the isolation in hiding 
something like that is really, really bad for you, which is why I decided to publicly talk about my own experiences with PTSD, even though, you know, it opens me up to, oh, she's unhinged. Oh, she's unstable. I get that all the time. I don't care. Right. Because it's a choice. It's hide that and have the shame slowly chip away at you or take the knocks and be able to be your authentic self around people both personally and professionally and social the social element of self-care is something sick not weak deals with you've got signups and everything like that there's a pop-up on your website it goes how are you doing you know that central question that most people don't ask sincerely why did you decide to put that so forward that it's one of the first things people encounter on the website you know, I, I think that um, when you ask someone a question, and especially, you know, when you ask it online, it's kind of rhetorical, right? Because no one knows who's answering how. You plant the seed in people's head of asking themselves, you know, how am I? And, you know, a, a lot of when I talk to people about mental health, uh, always, always the question that I get uh, is, well, what do I do about my friend or my son or my daughter or my partner in life mm -hmm. uh, who I know needs help, but keeps saying I'm never going for help, you know, and keeps oh, wow. shutting me down. And I, that's a really difficult question to answer, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because if it was easy, then they wouldn't be denying themselves the help. But mm -hmm. I often say, okay, well, you know, ask them the same questions you've been asking, but make it rhetorical. Say, look, I don't want you to give an answer because I know what you're going to answer. But ask yourself, you know, are you experiencing life in a way that you want to experience it? Are you able to experience joy? Do you have the same belief in yourself? Do you feel isolated? Do you feel hopeless? Uh, don't answer to me, but answer to yourself. And if the answer is... Uh, negative, mm -hmm. then uh, you owe it to yourself to chase something better than that. How do you balance, going back to the social thing and the social element of self-care, how do you balance that? Because you do, you know, you have experiences with anxiety that, oh my God, I'm going to be a burden. Oh my God, people are going to want to be around me with that need to reach out sometimes when you're having a bad day, right? You don't just reach out on the good days. Sometimes you have to reach out on the bad days. How do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, that that is a challenge because uh, I was brought up in an amazing house with mm -hmm. uh, totally loving parents who would have done anything for me. Uh, and I think that I became a pleaser that I wanted to please my parents. I never wanted to bring them grief. And also because, I mean, this is a mental health story, but my brother who's four years older than me and is a genius, um, uh, started drinking from a young age mm -hmm. and it brought my parents a, a lot of grief. And what he found after he was uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict, uh, prescription drugs, when he found that he realized I'm dying. My brother's a doctor, he's a kidney doctor, right? And he thought, I'm never, I, I like, I got to do something about this. Uh, he went to the right psychiatrist's office after he he went to a couple of the wrong psychiatrists. And they they, this one guy said, has no one ever diagnosed you with general anxiety disorder and panic disorder? And he said, no, I've, I've never heard anybody say that. So we put him on, uh, on, a, on an antidepressant because that seems to be the mm -hmm. best treatment for panic disorder and anxiety. And my brother never took another drink, never like no interest in it, 
because, you know, he had self-medicated himself oh, for mm -hmm. the pain that he was experiencing. And he was unable to, to cope with taking away the medication and taking away the alcohol until it was replaced by mm -hmm. something. So my, like, I, I saw that in my, in my brother, ironically, I was suffering from exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. but, uh, but kind of just buried it. Uh, and I wanted to please my parents. I didn't want to bring them any grief. And as a result, I think I learned to, um, to bury my own struggles uh, and just roll with it, to suck right. it up from the standpoint that, you know, I didn't want to share a, a lot of things with my wife because I, I, I didn't want to be a burden on her. Right. And it takes a lot to learn, uh, you know, to, to be a burden because that's what we're all owed. We're all owed sensitivity from the people around mm -hmm. us. And especially if, uh, if you come to the conclusion that um, you actually will get, you know, like the kind of sympathy and empathy that you require. Mm -hmm. What, because obviously that doesn't happen all at once. What were your first steps? Do you remember to change that behavior? Because that's a big one for a lot of people. You know, I, I think I felt um, with Karen, my wife, I mm -hmm. think I felt the obligation to be open with her when uh, when I first realized that there was something really wrong with me. Uh, and one of the lessons that I try to share with other people is that uh, I wasn't aware that I had a diagnosable mental illness depression uh, because it happened so slowly mm -hmm. that I had no idea that all of these tiny micro changes in me had added up to major changes in me until I turned down an opportunity to do something that I would normally have jumped at. And I hung up the phone and I thought, wow, why, why did I just say no to that? It's mm -hmm. not like me. And I started to forensically evaluate my life uh, in the previous six months. And I realized, I uh, came to this conclusion, oh my God, I've changed. I'm not the same person I was. And the person I am, I hate. And the person I am, I do not want to be. And for me, that was kind of the start of, of, uh, of chasing the help, so to speak. But I felt like I totally owed it to my wife to tell her that um, this was not her fault. Um, if, you know, if you have this relationship, uh, you know, if you have a good marriage mm -hmm. and you get hit by depression, it would be very easy for one partner, if you weren't, if, if they weren't informed of this illness to think, oh my gosh, like, why is he miserable? Like, did I do something? Does he not love me anymore? So I think that put me in a position where I thought I owed it to, uh, to her and my family to share it with them. Yeah. Wise words. Michael Landsberg, media personality, co-founder of Sick Not Weak. Michael, if people want to reach out more, find out more about what you do, get involved with some of the stuff that's going on. How do they find you and your organization? Yeah, uh, the website is a good way. And uh, I always give out my email address because the, the beauty of email is that you can ignore them if you don't want them, <laughs> right? So um, michael.landsberg, L-A-N-D-S-B-E-R-G at sicknotweak.com. Dot com. Once again, the email address, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot L-A-N-D-S-B-E-R-G at sicknotweek.com. And uh, I tell people all the time, you know, you, you got to start somewhere. Uh, sharing is an acquired skill. If you've mm -hmm. never shared with anyone, you got to pick someone. And people pick uh people like you and me because, because we're safe, right? And mm -hmm. people know that I get it. And that's why I think uh, when I spoke about it the first time on TV, um, I got 
um, the kind of reaction I did because people were looking for someone that was safe. Yeah, yeah. Taking that step yourself get, lets other people see it's not weakness to do it themselves. It's modeling behavior. We need more of that. And Michael just proved he has a much better schmaltzy radio announcer voice than I do. So now it's time to go to a break. Back in a bit. It's not therapy. I'm Lana Kirsten. Still not a therapist. More on self-care and finding joy after the break. The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on It's Not Therapy. I'm back. You're back. We're still talking self-care for tough guys. And uh, we don't have that much time left in the show because I was so captivated by what Michael was saying. I went long. But, you know, when someone is dealing with, let's say, an ego, maybe a lack of self-compassion, top 10 phrase, self-esteem cannot exist without self-compassion. And yet so many of us sacrifice self-compassion for that need to be tough. And it's a top 10 phrase of mine because I need to remind myself of that sometimes. And here's the thing about toughness. Toughness is great in moderation, but real talk, tough guys. And if you have a tough guy in your life, get him to listen to this part. You're a smart guy, tough guy. Sometimes the toughness overwhelms your smarts, but you have intelligence. And you know, deep down inside, whether you are being tough or whether you are being stupid and self-destructive. Now, the challenge with being stupid and self-destructive is you're being stupid and self-destructive, which means your mind is going to wrap around itself and worm all in on itself, trying to figure out ways to continue the self-destructive, stupid behavior because it wants to self-destruct. That's what makes coming out of the tough guy mindset and getting into a healthy routine of sustainable self-care so difficult. And the way I think of it is this. You guys know I love superheroes and I love my, you know, the Punisher Wolverine, even Batman, the Incredible Hulk, people who are not paragons of mental health are good life choices. But who's the guy you want to lead you? Who's the guy you want to inspire? Who's the guy you want leading your group? Captain America, right? And does Captain America yell at people, drink himself stinky, be generally grumpy and self-destructive? No. One of Captain America's catchphrases, at least in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is, I can do this all day. And that's what self-care does. If you want to sing it, like in Hawkeye, I can do this all day. Go ahead and do that. Now it's going to be stuck in your head forever. But that's the thing, right? Wolverine, what does he do? He jumps into a fight. He's the first guy in. He's the first guy that's get knocked out a lot of time. The Hulk gets angry, smashes a bunch of stuff. Captain America can sustain. And even though you may not think Captain America at first glance is the toughest of tough guys, Captain America has a shield as a weapon because he is the poster boy for resilience. He survived World War II. 
He's one of the toughest SOBs out there. You know it's true. That was tough, right? Yeah, he has the super soldier serum. But he survived something with his chin up. Well, okay, he got trapped in a block of ice. But he came through it with his head up when it broke his best friend, right? Now that, Bucky is not to blame. The Winter Soldier is not to blame. It happens to the best of us. But that resilience is something you can model. And I am out of time and I must model that discipline. Thank you very much for joining me and Michael Landsberg this week. Check out sicknotweek.com, nottherapyshow.com if you wanna send me a message. Until then, we are out of time, you're crazy is only a problem if it's hurting you. See you next time.